Hi, folks. This is Dara Star Tucker, and I want to let you know I will be in D.C., Washington, D.C., playing at the legendary Blues Alley Club on the 15th of October. Two shows that night, 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock. If you are in the area, if you have family or friends in the area, I would love to see you all there. We had an incredible time in New York at Dizzy's. I got the chance to do a Q&A during the show. We did meet and greet afterwards. I love connecting with you all in person. So would love to see those of you in the D.C. area at the Blues Alley show on the 15th of October, 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock. You can go to my website, darastartucker.com, or you can go to bluesalley.com to get your tickets. I'm excited to share this incredible talk with you today with a woman named Jessica Iwayor. And this is kind of a piggyback to the Dan McClellan talk if you listened to episode 19. She works specifically in the area of dispelling false origin stories, particularly within the black community, which have become quite rampant in the age of social media. It's very, very important work that she's doing, and she does it so compassionately, which is what I really love and appreciate about her. So I think you'll appreciate this conversation with her. Stay tuned for a great conversation with Jessica Iwayor and hope to see you on the 15th of October in D.C. Well, welcome to I'm All Over the Place. I am Dara Star Tucker, and I'm so glad to have a very special guest with me today, Miss Jessica Ann Mitchell Iwayor, founder of the National Black Cultural Information Trust. Thank you for being here, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. I have only recently uh, come upon your, your content on TikTok, and we're mutuals now, but what I loved about your work was I'm, I'm always interested in, in myth busting and truth telling and helping people to understand, to parse out fact from fiction in whatever, you know, area of specialty that you have. So your area of specialty is tell me more about what your area of specialty is and, and the kind of work that you do on TikTok. Sure. So um, my, my background is in Africana studies and communications. So I kind of put those two fields together um, to communicate African-American cultural history. Um, And one of the things that I do is also um, dispel or correct myths and disinformation, Mm -hmm. um, especially in my role as executive director of the National Black Cultural Information Trust. Uh, We deal with a lot of cultural issues. um, So we share information, news, and resources that uplift the collective freedom of Black communities. And a lot of time that freedom depends on knowledge and information Mm -hmm. and getting through the weeds when it comes to the disinformation that is off, that is um, sometimes targeting our communities. Yeah. Do you feel like there are, or do you know that there are specific efforts to target the Black community with disinformation about, I mean, from your perspective, probably more so history, but I, from my perspective, I feel like I see that politically and I know that there are operatives behind the scenes who are, you know, very much targeting the black community and, and wanting to pilfer off certain folk um, to, to basically feed specific information, you know, in support of a certain narratives. But do you see a lot of misinformation from a cultural or historical perspective out there? Yes, actually, and and that political aspect of it is often connected to the cultural and historical aspect. Mm -hmm. So when Black communities are even targeted online politically, what, let's say, Black voter suppression efforts online, a lot of times that's connected to actual historical events 
or mm-hmm. real sentiments that we feel in the black community. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Democrats aren't doing enough. Sometimes, you know, Republicans, aren't, we, we are, we know that overwhelmingly we don't think Republicans are doing enough, but what'll happen is those sentiments get taken by whichever entity online and then they infuse messaging, whether it be through fake accounts, like uh, during the 2020 election, Twitter had to take down multiple fake black Trump, black voters for Trump accounts mm-hmm. using, using pictures of actual deceased black soldiers and pretending uh. to be black and using these hashtags to try to, and they got thousands of followers. Hmm. And they're using like historic, often historical facts and real sentiments that we feel that mm-hmm. our communities are neglected, that people, politicians aren't doing enough. But what ends up happening is that that is molded into a type of persuasion, online manipulation tactic mm-hmm. to try to decrease black voter um, participation. So what we see online is often a lot of the missing disinformation is connected to a cultural or historical aspect affecting our communities. Mm. So do you feel like that is what makes, are we more vulnerable? I should ask it in that way. Are we more vulnerable to misinformation and disinformation online, Black Black people in general or Black Americans specifically? We're extremely vulnerable. We are especially vulnerable because um, our communities have, long been targeted physically we see the physical violence but our communities have often been excluded excluded from certain spaces when we're in the digital space especially with the boom of social media it's one of the first times where we are able to create our own platforms and online communities in like the split of a second but what happens is other people organizations or entities are watching those efforts and um, specifically micro-targeting us all the way down to our neighborhoods and our professions Mm. Um, and using historical aspects to try to persuade us in a specific way. So we are, and what, and the reason why we're even more vulnerable is because a lot of times the social media networks, they may try to, you know, uh, put in different measures But oftentimes it neglects the very specific historical and cultural aspects of why these these entities are um, targeting black communities in the first place. So a lot is missed. Mm -hmm. The communications done towards uh, white American communities will be different for what is done towards black American communities or Asian American communities. Um, So a lot of it it has to do with not having that cultural competency to even recognize what's happening in real time. And by the time it's, it's discovered, it's almost, it's not too late, but a lot of damage has already been done. Mm -hmm. How widespread is the problem of misinformation? I mean, I know it's hard, it would be hard to put a number on it or a percentage on it, but in your estimation is the, is there a way that you can communicate or encapsulate? I mean, obviously you've started, the National Black Cultural Information Trust, this is something that you feel is a significant issue. So how widespread is this this issue, this this problem of misinformation within the Black community? It is very much so widespread. It is difficult to put a number on it. 
But um, just to give people an example, um, TikTok is one of those platforms where it, the reason why we're drawn to it is, is it's much easier to get views, in my opinion, on that platform mm-hmm. than maybe YouTube or some other places. You could have zero followers, hop on, say something provocative, and boom, mm-hmm. you got a million views instantly. Well, uh, we've seen consistently this has happened in regards to Black history, uh, videos, fake Black history videos about MLK and why he was fighting for civil rights and all these different things. And then before you know it, the the video has 3 million views. Mm -hmm. Like before you know it, the video has 3 million views. And that's just one video, Mm -hmm. just one. It has went around the world and back. Mm-hmm. In one video, by the time it's taken down or the person retracts their statement or it's deleted, millions of people have viewed this and it happens repetitively. And then similar things happening on Facebook, uh, YouTube. Uh, ironically, Twitter, things go viral on there, but Americans are not so much on Twitter as they are on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, mm-hmm. and even TikTok. TikTok is growing, but it still hasn't like gotten to the mountaintop of social media platforms in the United States. But it is very much widespread and hard to calculate and put a particular number on it. But if uh, one was to look into Cambridge Analytica, this firm that was used by the Trump administration to micro-target Black communities, you can see the actual real-world impact of their micro-targeting, of Mm. their ad messaging and all that stuff that actually made specific um, uh, predominantly Black districts not turn out the vote. Mm. So there's real-world consequences to an untold number of views and shares and things like that. So, I mean, you touched on this just a little bit. Who's behind this and what is their motivation? Uh, well, a, a lot of different, uh, there, there can be a lot of different sources. Sometimes it's just a person making things up for mm-hmm. fun, just ironically. Sometimes it is a blogger trying to get views and be provocative. And we've seen that a lot with the Tory Lanez case and mm-hmm. other cases online. Um, And so sometimes it's social media influencers trying to get some buzz and steam um, with topics that may seem um, not so serious. But when you see the nature of how the impact happens on the community, then you can actually see that, hey, this can cause actual harm if a person like this was to spread, go even further with this message in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Um, we, We know through... Uh, the U.S. State Department and uh, researchers and missing disinformation that sometimes it could be Russia doing targeting. Um, That has often come up in terms of bot farms and things like that. And then we also know that there is an internal issue. Media Matters documented how on different um, uh, uh, platforms, white supremacists were openly saying to each other how they were going to create fake uh, digital blackface accounts Hmm. to stir up trouble and to uh, cause discord among our community. So it comes from a number of various places. Hmm. 
And what do you what do you think that the that the real motivation is? What's the goal? What's the end game with all of this? Stay with us. We'll be right back. It's Joseph M. Wanted with the Constitutionalist Politics. Tune in for the upcoming episode for May 4. Issue, never the issue, as well as, yes, Peter Serafin, Rosemary Downer, Don Gallade, Gista the Rapper, Cy Young, Jason Perry, and upcoming Jack Hagar, Andrew Thorpe King, Trent Rock, Ed Temple, Chris Morehouse, and more. Please tune in to Constitutionalist Politics. God bless. Sometimes it's as simple, well, it's not simple, but sometimes it's straight up voter suppression tactics. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's to cause confusion about a particular political issue. For example, when uh, the shade room picked up the story saying that the Biden administration was giving out 30 million crack pipes. And (laughs) if you were to, what happens there is their staff isn't, I don't know what staff they have now, but media literacy is something their staff would need. Right, right. There's there's dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of right-winger websites that look like, when you go to it, normal official newspaper websites. Mm -hmm. But it's to look beyond the headline and even look beyond the text that they put there, which is often something that they copy and pasted. Mm -hmm. Look down to see who owns the website. Mm -hmm. Who is this person? Who are they affiliated with? And normal everyday people don't have time to do that. We're scrolling. But an entity like the Shade Room should have time to do that before they post something and it goes to millions of people. So sometimes it's voter suppression. Sometimes it's meant to make us turn on specific policies that might actually have a benefit for our communities. Um, so like in the example of the crack pipe thing, it wasn't that they were giving out crack pipes. They were doing some type of um, a plan to try to prevent the spread of diseases among drug users. And a crack pipe was not at all even a part of the kit and the resources that they were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it just was the messaging behind it was co-opted and then it went viral and bigger black blogs or entities picked it up. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it's meant to attack black collective activism. Almost every major movement that we've had for black liberation or civil rights in the United States has taken a coalition of black folks from various backgrounds and ethnicities. Sometimes these types of things are meant to have us at each other's other's throats. Mm -hmm. The diaspora wars are not always authentic activity that is happening online. Sometimes Mm. they are bolstered Mm. to cause further confusion, to cause further online conflict to make it harder to do any type of Black collective activism or unifying around a particular issue that would benefit all people of African descent. Mm. Yeah. So I kind of want to ask, and maybe I will save this question till the end, like what we can do about this. I mean, obviously you're in an activism space and you're doing your job. Um, what, What can the rest of us do to fight this misinformation? Well, you want me to answer this? Yeah, now? you can go ahead and answer it now. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Sure. So one of the first things that you can do is when you see something that, and I mean, you can't always know this, but if you see something that just is so shocking and so outrageous, resist the urge to instantly reshare it. Mm -hmm. That's one of the first things, the easiest thing that you can do is just resist the urge to hit like, yeah, retweet or repost, whatever it is now, or resist the urge to pop up for TikTok creators to pop up and make a video, resist the urge to immediately take the link and post it on Facebook, resist that urge. If you have, honestly, a lot of us, like I said, don't have the time to always do background research, but at least resist the urge until a entity that is trustworthy, and there's a lot of them, and they don't always have to be white-owned or corporate corporations or anything like that, but resist the urge to reshare a particular story until you can get more information or facts from a source that is actually trustworthy, Mm -hmm. a source that you know of, a source that has the journalistic background. So that would not be the shade room on policy issues. It just wouldn't be them. On the gossip of what happened on Love and Hip Hop, yes. On Real Housewives, yes. (laughs) Policy, not so much because they have just gotten it wrong so many times. I'm not picking on them. They're not the only ones. Baller alert and a number. I can't even remember the names of some of them on Twitter um, that are constantly posting they're not the only one but resist the urge until you can get a reliable source and this is this will be a source with the accurate background information that has built a legacy of trust and um that knows that that is in a particular subject area or has access to experts in that subject area that's the first thing you can do is not reshare (laughs) Okay, well, at the end of uh, this this podcast, I want you to give us some news resources that you feel like are trustworthy recommendations um, of people to follow. And I'm going to put this down in our chat just so that we both remember to to come back to it. Um, But what I kind of want to talk about right now before I have you give a few examples of misinformation, I want to talk about the why, like why the black community specifically, and it's not to say only the black community, but why we are a bit more what I, that we can be a bit more susceptible to misinformation, why we tend to be the target of a lot of misinformation and why it tends to work probably better than what it should um, on our community. My observation, just in the time that I have spent doing what I do in the online kind of activism space or information educational space My observation is that because of the history of trauma of Black people in the United States, and really all over the world, but specifically in the United States, because because of the history, there is a lot of mistrust of the government. There's a lot of mistrust of the powers that be in general. There's just a lot of mistrust of authority um, and an assumption and an automatic tendency to to assume that if this is coming from what is considered to be an authoritative source, well, this is something that I should be suspicious of. I can't trust it. And we all know that there is obviously a history there of, you know, all 
also all sorts of sorts of reasons why black folks specifically might not trust the government, might not trust the police, might not trust people in authority. Um, but uh, to to throw in an, a real life example, and, and not even in the area of particularly of, of culture or history or or news or politics or anything like that, but just with some you know minor reporting that I've done on a man named Eric Mate, who was a writer for Good Times, and he worked for Norman Lear and helped him develop a lot of his shows. Well, I had heard over the years, you know, inklings of like, hey, you know, there's a black guy who says that Norman Lear pilfered some of his work or didn't pay him properly for some of the work that he did or stole from him or whatever. I had heard a little bit of this here and there. And so uh, I decided to start investigating. I just, you know, I thought, well, that's kind of odd for somebody to be accusing Norman Lear, who's like, you know, we all know who Norman Lear is. He's freaking Kennedy Center. Honestly, he's won every major award and Emmys and, you know, all sorts of things. Um, why does Norman Lear need to steal uh, from a black man? But I thought it was enough to investigate. Like, this is worth investigating. Let me see how much truth there is there is to this. But when I said in the video that I had my, I had my um, skepticism, that's what I said at the beginning of the video. It was like, when I first heard that there was a black man who was accusing Norman Lear of doing this, I have to admit I was a little bit skeptical. Like, why does Norman Lear? And then I went down all of his accomplishments. And I, somebody recently shared this. I, someone tagged me in it yesterday. Of course, did not give me any attribution or credit. And then they chopped up the video and only showed parts of it. And there were people all in the comment section as they were when I first posted it going, well, why do you think, why would you think that that uh, you needed to be suspicious? They do this all the time. They steal from us. This is what they do. They blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, yes, on one hand, I can understand how in the back of our minds, we might think, yeah, okay, well, I don't have that hard of a time believing that a black person might have had their work pilfered or stolen or whatever. But to question whether I, as a, you know, as an investigator, an educator or whatever, should be somewhat questioning or, or um, not even, I don't want to use the word suspicious, but skeptical to question whether there should be a healthy amount of skepticism of something like that, a very, you know, accomplished person. And you have someone who is, whose name is not known, who is saying, this is my work. Um, in my estimation, there is not oftentimes when it comes to that racial dynamic. And a lot of the work that I do is around race and you know, just exposing a lot of wrongs that have been done. So, you know, I, the wool is not over my eyes in any way with regard to this stuff. But I feel sometimes that there is a lack of healthy skepticism oftentimes when we feel on, on the part of black Americans, when we feel that there is uh, some racial dynamic to a story that is being reported. If a black person has been victimized in some way, shape or form, or if there's an accusation, there is oftentimes an automatic tendency to just give them the benefit of the doubt. We're not going to question. We're not going to ask. Like you said, immediately hit that share button. You know, the, the Justice Smollett case comes to mind. And um, I think there was another one recently that I'm not remembering. Oh, the young woman who said that she was kidnapped and things like that. We tend to automatically be willing to believe and assume, give the benefit of the doubt, which to some degree, if it is, if a person has been truly victimized, 
it is a beautiful thing to give the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but how, you know, how do we balance that out? I guess just that that tendency, which is a compassionate tendency to want to give victims, especially victims of racial injustice, the benefit of the doubt, but also carrying with us a healthy amount of skepticism, even when there is a racial dynamic at play. How do you how do you balance both of those those instincts? I lean towards believing a victim Mm -hmm. but i also lean heavily towards getting facts as they come in Mm -hmm. sometimes you don't you don't always have the information up front you just don't even the best journalist the best researcher it takes time like in the jesse smollett case i think it's good to automatically believe someone if they say something like this has hurt our community but you also want to wait to see the facts of the case what happened as it comes out mm-hmm. and so I think for the most part people were it, it wasn't wrong for us to believe Jussie or to believe the young woman and I can't remember her name now she um, was in Alabama and I apologize that I, yeah. I don't know her name offhand either I, I did remember but now I, I don't remember in Alabama um, she was in fact missing that was a fact Now, how she came up missing, we got that later as the facts unfolded that she made herself go missing. But she was missing and that was factual. And that is a, we should be concerned. Right. Um, It's okay to show that level of concern. I think that's the the balance. That concern and that automatic empathy is a good thing that our community has. Mm -hmm. And then from there, figuring out what happened. Mm-hmm. And being okay with the facts not being what we expected them to be. Right, right. I think that's part of it. Um, I think oftentimes in these cases, in both of those cases, you know, which are more kind of current news stories versus more of the historical misinformation that oftentimes you address. But I mean, do you address current news stories or is it more like history's false history or misinformation with regard to history? Is it current uh, information as well? It's current too. So like when Nicki Minaj's cousin's friends uh, balls were affected by COVID. Right. right. We made a statement about that and covered that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think oftentimes in these, in these cases specifically, and I'm thinking about Eric Monte, this, this man that accused Norman Lear of, of stealing from him. And like I said, I did an entire report on him, ended up doing a fundraiser on him. Um, We're still paying his rent from the funds that were paid there. I'm in absolute support of him. Uh, But as I said, there was a lot of, of vit, I don't want to say vitriol, but there were a lot of accusations directed at me for not immediately, you know, jumping and wanting to believe every part of a story. There are still parts of his story, to be honest, that I don't know necessarily whether they played out the way that he said that they did. I know that in a fundamental sense, he was done wrong and he is owed something. Um, so I feel like in terms of balancing the the compassionness and as you said, being being having a tendency or having an inclination to support victims and to believe victims versus waiting to get enough information where we can make sure that we are not making wrong judgments about what is happening in the news or what has happened historically. I think one of the fundamental um, 
steps towards finding that balance is is it, it kind of alludes to something that you said initially, which is being willing to take the time to step back and allow certain things to play out before either hitting share, making a comment, making the judgment, sending it to your mama's cousins, nephews, uncles, friends, aunties, um, or making accusations about someone who has been publicly accused of something. But I think in the age of social media, the reason that this misinformation machine has gotten so out of control, whether it's uh, calculated or just happenstance, a, a lot of folks are just sharing bad information because uh, we just have the tendency to want to share things. Uh, one of the reasons that it's gotten so out of control is that we don't take time. We don't step back. We don't allow ourselves to think. And I've often seen people be criticized for asking, you know, in, in, in the case of police brutality, it, it can kind of be a, a kind of a in weird, slippery slope because oftentimes you'll hear, oh, let's wait to hear. We don't know what happened before the tape started, that kind of thing. And that can be very frustrating for, you know, for black folks who know that historically we have been um, more, we've had more of a tendency to be victimized by police and victims of police brutality. And the answer tends to always be, well, you know, let's let's not make a judgment. Let's not make a snap judgment. Let's wait and see until we have more information. So I think, you know, oftentimes we we want to be perceived as believing victims and we want to be perceived as supporting black people. I'm, you know, as Issa Rae says, I'm I'm uh, I'm rooting for everybody black. You know, we we that is our instinctive, automatic tendency. Um so how do you, I mean, how do you balance that, that out with a tendency, to, with the, with a need to use wisdom before we, um, before we support openly and before we share, how do you balance that out yourself? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about that empathy and concern. Because we know the history of this country, especially dealing with police brutality, mm -hmm. uh, we know that more often than not, police brutality victims are telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's okay for us to show immediately immediate concern or empathy. Mm -hmm. Now, if information comes out later that this wasn't exactly how we thought it was. It's also okay to react to that once you get more information. I think sometimes the problem is um, some of us engage in denialism over certain things. Mm -hmm. The majority of, of our community does not do this, but it's just certain issues. But really when it comes to like issues like police brutality, it's very few fake instances of mm -hmm. that so that being a, a, a real big concern is not so much mm -hmm. however 
if you want to err on the side of caution with a story that may seem too outrageous or may seem just hold on the pause button, but don't be afraid to share your compassion and empathy on certain mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and say, I can't wait to hear more, learn more about what happened. Mm-hmm. So I want you to kind of run run down a little bit of a short list of just like, if we're talking historically or if we're talking modern day, I mean, you've already given us a few examples, um, but I can think of a few examples offhand myself, but you had kind of specializing in the work that you do. What are, we're going to go through maybe like a top five, like the top five bits of misinformation, whether it be false history, false origin stories, just uh, legends and belief systems. I, I don't know if you're dealing in conspiracy necessarily, but what are your kind of all-star top five, like if I could reach the, the whole of, you know, Black America and dispel this, this misinformation or disinformation, these are the top five that I would address. So can you, can you kind of run those down for us? Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's a big job. I should have prepared you, but. <laughs> That's a big job. I think that there's generally a lot of misinformation. And, I, and let me back up a minute, because we just kind of jumped into talking about it without me providing uh, folks definitions. Mm-hmm. So this misinformation is, is information that um, is, is false, but the person didn't know it was false. It, it's just, maybe you misheard it and you repeated it in the way that you misheard it. And then now it spreads and somebody else believes this thing, but it's not on purpose. Mm-hmm. That's misinformation. Mm-hmm. And so that often happens um, like with the story of the doctor that um, uh, uh, did work on blood transfusions and then he had a car accident and everybody was told he died because he didn't get the blood. Mm-hmm. But that actually isn't why he died. That was, That's misinformation. It's a myth. But it, it's not on purpose that people believe that. It's right. just that we've been told the story so many times wrong that we all believed it. Mm-hmm. Um, disinformation is when a person, entity, organization, whatever, creates false information with the intention of deceiving people or persuading people to think another way. Mm-hmm. That's disinformation when it's done on purpose. Now, there's another one, malinformation, where it can use components of real information, but for a malicious purpose. Mm. Um, and so, for example, malinformation of, of, of a mixture of malinformation and misinformation. During the height of COVID, um, and this is a big one that deals with healthcare. So I will put this in my top five. Okay. During the height of COVID, uh, when people were trying to get people vaccinated, which is still very much (laughs) a a, a tug of war here, um, the Tuskegee syphilis study kept coming up. Mm -hmm. And many people believed that Black men were injected with syphilis. That is not what happened. They had syphilis. They were told they were going to be treated Instead, the government watched them die slowly. Hmm. That's what happened. So the truth is the government did something foul to African-American men and did not treat them. 
Okay, that's the that, but but we mit, we're misinformed about how it occurred. Mm-hmm. That's the misinformation part. The mal well, the malinformation part is it's true that the government did something wrong to black men concerning their health care. The misinformation part is how it occurred, mm-hmm. whether it was injection or they already had it. Mm-hmm. So then what happens with the malinformation is they bank on the misinformation. Mm-hmm. These are entities and 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 there were specific organizations online trying to dissuade black communities from getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about black folks. Mm-hmm. These are So what ends up happening is there's a mixture of fact and fiction combined meant to persuade people a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that often comes up in healthcare a lot. And so we have to be very careful with that because on one hand, we know that the U.S. healthcare industry has an internalized racism problem and does not always treat its Black patients the way that we should be treated. We're either we either get maltreatment or we don't get the treatment that we need or deserve. But also there are some things where we really need but are afraid to get because of these true issues. And so what we have to do there is seek out information from black doctors, nurses, organizations, um, and other experts on this, on these topics as they come up. COVID was the most pressing one, it still is, concerning this specific issue. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have uh, the political aspect of it, where it is true that a lot of the politicians want our vote and don't do enough for our communities. Historically, that is true. So that information is used sometimes by organizations, entities, whoever behind the scenes to take it and push for us to vote even less. Because why are you voting? That's going to happen anyway, mm-hmm. which is true. Local and national politics are very important to what happens in our lives on a day-to-day basis. We see that with everything that's unfolding right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens here is a mixture of malinformation using the accurate part of, we know that politicians don't always keep their word. And then the uh, disinformation of telling us that when we vote, nothing matters. It doesn't matter if you vote or not. So why do it? Mm-hmm. So that's a, that would be my, those are my top two healthcare policy. And then there's when it comes to a lot of these diaspora wars and things like that, it's something that's not actually investigated enough for me in terms of mis and disinformation online. But what happens in a lot of digital spaces is we are told Black history, African American history in a very limited way. Mm-hmm that is very specific to U.S. borders, which isn't quite accurate when it comes to our history because our ancestors were chattel, considered chattel. Mm -hmm. They were circulated throughout the United States and the Caribbean and back. Mm -hmm. 
so when these diaspora wars pop up, a lot of it centers on who was really enslaved in America versus who wasn't, or who really has claims over who over blackness versus who doesn't. And a lot of it really leans on missing disinformation about general black Atlantic history. That mm-hmm. could be cleared up if every one of us were able to take a great big old African-American history lesson, which of course we see people in this country right now, politicians fighting against us learning our own history. Mm-hmm. Those, so my top three to rewind, healthcare, policy, diaspora wars. Then we get into the origin stories, the false origin stories. Mm-hmm. And this one, it it has a lot of different weird things happening within it. A lot of the false origin stories, and when I say that, I'm talking about false origin stories about Black Americans and where we come from and who mm-hmm. we are, are spread by Black content creators for various reasons. Um, and some of it is for clicks and views. Some of it is to get money. Just a lot of different reasoning. Um, and some of this hinges on internalized Afrophobia, hmm. where it's we have we're constantly attacked for our blackness. We have been constantly attacked for being people of African descent, and the way in which media negatively depicts Black America within our own country juxtapose that to how the continent of Africa as a whole has been treated by media as this poor, terrible, desolate place with backward people. Mm -hmm. And you get a mixture of people either not wanting to identify as Black or not wanting to identify as a person of African descent and all these different false origin stories are are likely to pop up. Mm -hmm. So the top three are we are the original Native Americans. Mm -hmm. that's more um the second one is um the nuwabian story that i wouldn't put that in number two but it's just in the list um and then there's also the we are the original hebrews um so some of these things are a lot of it is a mixture of fact and fiction mm-hmm um, and so I also want to do the dis- disclaimer that not everyone that identifies as a Hebrew or Hebrew Israelite engages in mis- and disinformation. But there are sects, there are uh, various parts of the overall um, belief system where there are people and entities and organizations that do spread disinformation mm-hmm. for various reasons. Um, so that often leads into conversations about identity and religion. Hmm. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, all of these things that you're mentioning kind of have that in common, kind of going back to the question of why we as black folk tend to be more susceptible. I don't know if I would say we're more susceptible, but why we tend to be susceptible to misinformation, to disinformation, there is a reason that we want to latch on to certain stories. As I said, we have a perception of victimization around race, which is legitimate. That's legitimate, but 
if if we're all too willing to believe that it happened uh, regardless of any kind of examination around it, if we're willing to if we're uh, questioning the legitimate concern of how we were brought here and separated from our history and we're not are not being allowed to learn our history as we should be, we are more susceptible to believing a false history or believing a contaminated history. So it all kind of starts, the germ of that, the genesis of it usually starts with a legitimate need, a legitimate hurt, legitimate pain, which then opens the door to um, nefarious actors or um, just, I was a carelessness at certain times. It opens the door for us to behave carelessly if we are perpetuating uh, some of these myths and legends. Um, I'm particularly interested in, I'm, I've got a couple of episodes coming. I've got a, an episode of the podcast coming on specifically on um, the kind of the false history around, um, I, not specifically on the history of the black Hebrews, but on the false history of the, you know, the Khazar theory, which is uh, basically that says that Jewish people, Ashkenazi Jews are not true descendants of the, 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 uh, nations of, of Judah, the tribe of Judah. So which the black Hebrew narrative heavily plays into how prevalent is this? Um, Cause I know that there are, there are true uh, congregations within the United States that have for, you know, as long as black people have been here that have been, that have practiced um, at least some, some form of Judaism or have been heavily influenced by Judaism. And they have, they have kind of folded that practice even and married it and mixed it with Christianity. So that is a legitimate tradition in the United States. There are people who are true, you know, black Hebrews or, or have I just identified with that struggle or who have converted or um, there are, there are black people across the world who carry a Jewish lineage who are ethnically Jewish. And so it's not to undermine um, Judaism and its influence um, on the black diaspora, but the, this specific strain of, of black Hebrewism, or I don't know exactly what you would call it. Um, how has this taken hold? How do you feel like, uh, what, what avenue has this theory um, taken to reach as many people as it has? Why is it so popular? How has it spread so quickly? And why is it so prevalent right now? Because I feel like the black Hebrew narrative is to the 2000s, is to this century as the uh the nation of islam they are as popular now as or becoming as popular now as nation of islam was like in the 80s 90s and stuff when i was growing up um now it's kind of more of a black hebrew situation um which is nothing wrong like i said if you are a black person who identifies with um um with the uh the, the tribe of judah or you have that actual lineage it's not to undermine that but we're speaking very of a very specific strain of black um, Hebrewism that attempts to invalidate the ancestry of Ashkenazi Jews. Why has this taken hold in the way that it has? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. 
To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Yeah, and thank you for making that distinction because uh, I believe the Southern Poverty Law Center also makes the distinction. Um, they refer to the specific group that you're talking about as radical Hebrew Israelites as opposed to other groups of Hebrew right. Israelites. Right. And then there's also people that are Black Jews, which is separate from the Hebrew yeah, Israelites. Absolutely. Which they have that whole internal dialogue or... Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's like a traditional Islam versus nation of Islam. These are two different things, but yeah. Black people could theoretically be a part of, of either, and we don't ever want to assume that you are necessarily... Um, um, that this this newer strain of Black Hebrew Israelites simply because you are Black and you are Jewish. So but how do you feel like that? Why do you feel like this, this new strain of it has taken hold in the way that it has? I think it comes from the same place as um, some of, of the, we're the real Native American native uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it really has to do with rejection of African ancestry or identity um, sometimes it's not a full-on rejection, but a rejection of the of the history, the true history of our ancestry. Many of our ancestors were not Hebrew. They they just were not. If you are talking about Black Americans specifically, the vast majority of our ancestors that came from West and Central Africa were people that practiced African traditional religions or spiritual systems. Now. of our ancestors were Muslim. That is not a, that is not, so it's not to say we're outright saying none of them practiced Abrahamic religions. There were some that were Christian even before they came over. There's evidence of that in South Carolina with the Stono Rebellion, um, with some of them being followers of Kempa Vita, who was a Christian convert in the Congo. Um, So there's evidences of, of some Abrahamic religions among African-Americans before coming to the United States, but they also were not native to the region. A lot of these ancestors or converts or descendants of converts that um, were brought to the United or to what would become the United States. I think that um, the, the want to be included as the original or uh, be native to Judaism or being Hebrew has a lot to do with shame of African ancestry and history and not really wanting to be connected to that history by viewing it as less than. Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't always the case. There are people that are that identify as African, Hebrew, Israelite, etc. But the automatic rejection of African, of at least knowing that your ancestors practice a religion outside of Abrahamic religions for some produces a sense of shame. And so if they can shake that off and say, no, we're the real true Hebrew, we're the real true Hebrew Israelites. And it was predicted that we would be enslaved and taken to America. And that's why they don't, that's what they don't want you to know. That's that is a way of making people feel better about a very complicated and traumatic history. And um, it has even gone so far as down in, 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 I believe it was in Charleston, there was a tour that's supposed to be about Gullah Geechee history, 
where the whole time they're telling people that we're the original Hebrew Israelite and mm. like harping on that and all that rich Gullah Geechee history, all that direct connection to African ancestry just brushed to, to the side in order to claim some other type of legacy that makes you feel better. And a lot of it also has to do with kind of like the current supremacy of Abrahamic religions in general across the world. It's just the dominant, these are the, the dominant religions of our time right now. And so people want to feel attached to that in different ways. People want to, so some people want to go as far as say they're the original. Um, but it's okay to not be. <laughs> yeah. You know, my ancestors are, uh, I come from Gullah Geechee ancestors. They were Christian, you know, obviously for different reasons. Some of them, some of my ancestors may have even been Muslim. I just don't know of, of them. But the point is, it's okay to be a, a part of an Abrahamic religion without having to recreate history in order to feel like you belong, mm -hmm. in order to feel a sense of pride. You don't have to do that. But that is what is being done oftentimes. And also, knowing the trauma of what happened to both people of African descent and, and Jewish people, not excluding the fact that there are Jews of African descent, mm -hmm. but just knowing that these communities have experienced this much trauma, it is disheartening that some people will have these narratives that drive a further wedge between our communities and yeah. make it harder for Black Jews who are already dealing with racism and dealing with cultural differences and issues and trying to forge those bonds. Uh, so it's just a lot that goes on behind that. Um, there's a lot of, of real trauma behind these different levels of denialism and false origin stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've even noticed a tendency very recently, I would say in the last couple of years, um, we've seen a couple of videos that have been circulating uh, about false origin stories around uh, our Christian history. Um, when you hear a lot of accusations about, you know, this is a white man's religion and it's a white man's this and a lot of rejection of Christianity because this is, this was a religion that was forced upon us when we came to this country. There has recently been a lot of pushback to that from uh, black Christians that basically say, no, Christianity was widespread in Africa. Christianity was everywhere. And if you really know your history, then you know Christianity was not just the white man's religion. This was our religion when we when we were in Africa. And I feel like that, you know, that theory has taken root in a completely different segment of the population. It's definitely popular amongst black Christians who get a hold of that, but it's also popular among white people. Can you speak to that one? Yeah. Um so there, there are African influences on Christianity today, most certainly among Ethiopians that have one of the oldest African um, Christian uh, um, histories. Mm -hmm. But Christianity was not widespread in Western and Central Africa. It mm -hmm. just is not what it was. It just wasn't. Um, there may have been small groups it, it, it just was not as widespread as people are making it to be. And again, it comes from that point of wanting to feel whole, 
uh, wanting to feel like we belong. So we claim this thing. Mm-hmm. Like I was saying before, there were Christians in the Congo. Kempovita was a convert, though. She was an African spiritualist. And her, but her theology, according to the dreams that she had, was that Jesus was a black, Mary was black, Jesus was black. They they were a Congolese people, and that is what she was preaching to her followers. And um, so, so even her theology was not <laughs> what other people were preaching at that time. And she was she was killed as a heretic. Mm which is awful. And many of her followers were sold off into slavery. Uh, the thing about Kempovita is part of why um, she warned of slavery being a big issue and really tried to push the Congolese away from the Portuguese because she said they're going to enslave us all. Hmm. So um, this woman was very insightful. She is called by some the mother of Black liberation. And hmm. some of her followers were in the Stono Rebellion in South Carolina. And some of them were in the Haitian Revolution. Hmm. But the numbers are small. <laughs> they're not, they're not like, we're not talking about 2 million people. Mm-hmm. So to as a counter to Christianity as the white man's religion, which is also false, mm-hmm. not the white man's religion. But it was used and weaponized against um, black people. So white evangelicalism, I would call that. Yeah, white mm-hmm. man's religion. But, but Christianity as a whole is not the white man's religion. Mm. That's the co-option of what occurred. That was a whitewashing of our history or general Christianity. Um, we know Jesus was not a white man. Mm-hmm. And so all of that is it, like we're trying to sometimes fight disinformation with more disinformation Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to get through the noise when somebody comes and tries to correct it but no christianity was not widespread in western and central africa again our ancestors were predominantly practicing african traditional religions and spiritual systems um and also Christianity is not the white man's <laughs> But two things can be wrong at the same time. <laughs> and and lastly, I kind of want you to speak on on that um that original native narrative as well. Um, that's one that I am also kind of working on a bit of a breakdown about. I'm almost through the breakdown about the the Khazar theory, meaning the theory of of Jewish people usurping uh, the, the heritage of black Jews or Ashkenazi Jews usurping the heritage of black Jews and supposedly they are the false, um, a false people. So I, I will be doing a breakdown on this uh, original native and just kind of getting into really the gene, the genealogy of it. Is this something that can be proven um, uh, studying geographical migrations and things like that? And where did the original natives in, in the United States, what is now the, the United States come from and, all of that, but can you speak to that in terms of just our how we came to this? How did we come to this? You know, to the extent that you know how we came to this this theory, and it's so interesting how these these false histories contra- I would think they contradict each other. So if this group is right, then this other group over here could not possibly be right. So you all have a revelation about something that is stands in complete contradiction to how this other group is saying this this went down, and I don't know how that relates to the Moors 
you know, this whole theory that we are, we were really Moors and we came over before Christopher Columbus and these were kings from Africa and they made it and we were all here and established. And is this the black native theory? Is, is that, is that the theory? There's multiple ones. There, there, okay. There's not one specific one. There's the one where people um, use the work of Ivan von Sertema to say we came before Columbus. And even he issued a correction after all of that to say mm -hmm. he never said that we were the original Native Americans. But people missed that correction. They who's who's the author that you're referencing? I'm sorry. Ivan von Sertema. He was a scholar. He's the one that people often reference when they start with these theories. They say, have mm -hmm. you read The Came Before Columbus? And a oh, lot okay. of... Yes, I know the book. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what he wrote was um, challenged. Mm -hmm. And But I can honestly say when he was trying to write it, he was trying to showcase African influences around the world. And But the book often causes, unfortunately a lot of conflict, more conflict than uh, I think he ever anticipated. Mm -hmm. I can't speak for him. I, I, you know, but there are some falsehoods and some misconceptions in that book. Mm -hmm. um, and he does try to do some corrections later on, but of course that is often ignored. Right. He also never denied the transatlantic slave trade. And he has written about the transatlantic slave trade and that we are African people. But the people that reference that book will tell you, no, we was the Native Americans, but Ivan Van Sertima was saying we were Africans. So he he had some, it's a, it's a complex and there's some misinformation also within his work. Mm -hmm. But I think he was a genuine scholar trying to do something good. Mm. Um, but there's, there's some complications with his work for sure. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how many of these folks I have in my company, you know, because of the type of, of content that I do. I have a lot of these folks, you know, from all different directions in my comments. Sister, you don't know who you are. and You need to learn and you don't know your history and you, you're lost and we're not Africans. You don't know. And I'm just like, man, y'all are coming from so many di different directions. It almost feels like playing whack-a-mole, like trying to keep up with all of the different theories and, you know, not not insulting people or dismissing people because they really are searching for a sense of connectedness and a sense of, I would say a sense of valor. I feel like a lot of this, this stuff comes from place, not only as you were saying of Afro, you, you called it Afrophobia. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but it is, a, it, it is from, it is from a place of, I don't really want to say shame, but it's from, from a place of, of shame of being descendants in this country of enslaved people we were just that sense of we were captured we were conquered we were dragged over here against our will and we were subjugated and put asunder for you know 150 years or whatever we were we were uh, we were lo we lost mm -hmm. we were conquered people and we are still recovering from that sense of having been conquered and you know there's a, a perception of, of us being docile or not, you know, not smart or wily enough or wise enough or rich enough or, you know, just not enough to have overcome that. And I feel like, you know, you touched upon some of this a little earlier of just that sense of wanting to find, you know, a place of belonging and uh, a connectedness with a history that that speaks to a, dig a dignity that we feel is that we are worthy of that 
that for me is the bedrock of all of this. That's where that's that is what what causes us to be susceptible to a lot of this misinformation. And also the fact that we were miseducated. That's why Carter G. Woodson wrote The Miseducation of the Negro. And we are mm-hmm. still denied access to our history. Yeah. They yeah. pulled down whole history libraries in, yeah. in, in Florida and, and, and Arkansas is telling people they got to hand over Black history books to the state. There has always been an attack on Black history and us learning who we are, which also makes us more vulnerable to some of these theories and the dis- myths and disinformation that's out there. Ironically, though, the whole we are the original Native Americans, if you're trying to get around feeling conquered, why choose Native American? Like, it doesn't make sense because they're they're also in that situation when it comes Mm -hmm. to having been uh, uh, experienced that violence and colonialism and the Mm -hmm. conquered and all that kind of stuff. So that that does not it doesn't keep you away from 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 that type of um, having that type of a history. Um, so one of the things that uh, I sometimes engage, I definitely study. The reason why it's coming up so prevalently is because there are a number of very popular YouTube channels spreading this. Yeah. And YouTube is one of the top social media websites that Americans use. Mm-hmm. And people are becoming influenced by this. And it's almost like a sleight of the hand. The, the commentator shows some document that people never heard of before and like, Next thing you know, people are believing this mm-hmm. um, and, and, it, and they're getting millions of views across yeah. YouTube. And so what happens is people end up believing. And it's a, and again, this is a mixture of fact and fiction. Mm-hmm. Someone named Walter Plecker did try to rename a group of Native Americans as Negro, but it was in one state. And it was near the end of chattel slavery. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. so that he doesn't make up for the 300 years before that. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't reclassify all Native Americans as Negro and never had that opportunity too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a mixture of, 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 of fact and fiction in terms of where at who, which Africans came where. People are saying, well, maybe it did happen, but the mo- most of us were here already. No, you weren't here already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most of your ancestors were not here already. I've heard people say, well, how did 240 pilgrims bring 10 million people over? And and the question, if you were to look at it, it, it it's just so ridiculous because you really thought that, was it one boat ride? Did you right. that like right. not, not centuries? It was centuries of people right. being brought over. And then there were our ancestors being bred like cattle. Right, right. They were breeding us. Right. Constantly breeding us. Mm -hmm. So like this idea that it was just, people take some of the smallest things and twist it to fit a narrative sometimes. But if you're to go back, I have one of those, um, TikTok has that new thing on this day. Mm-hmm. And mine popped up for today, a video I made two years ago called Where Are the Slave Ships mm. that I'm going to post when I get off here. But this was a genuine question. Well, if we came, where the ships? I'm like, <laughs> are you asking where all the horse and carriages are too? <laughs> like legit, are you asking for the horse and buggies and carriages? What is this? You're not asking to see that. And that was even more recent than slavery. 
But you believe that people were riding horse and carriages. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's, it's, it's people, some people embracing this, like we said, that level of shame. Mm -hmm. And for me, a lot of it is that internalized Afrophobia, anything African. Yeah. You know, being evil or negative or less than, mm -hmm. so you don't want to connect with it. You can say, well, I'm black, but I'm not African. Right, right. And that's a whole nother thing. We're, we're the Moors. We're the Moors. We're not, yeah. you know. That's a whole nother thing trying to disconnect blackness from Africanity because the whole reason we're black in the United States is because in 1705, well, not the whole reason, but one, one of the um, part of that is how race was created and then codified into mm -hmm. law. And in right. Virginia, they codified Negroes being real estate into law in 1705. Hmm. And when they said Negro, they weren't talking about this one group, that one group, all those dozens of African ethnicities they put under Negro. Mm -hmm. And we're black. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's a lot behind it, but it goes back to the heart of our communities being vulnerable because we have not always had access to our, our, our full history. Yeah. A lot of what I learned was in grad school. Mm. or reading on my own in middle school and high school. And it's just some things to me that I think is the, a basic Black historical fact. Many people have not heard it. Mm -hmm. And that's not their fault. So as an educator, like that's a job that mm -hmm. I'm responsible for. So I try to take good care, take care in my responses and how I address certain topics. Um, so it, 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 this just goes back to the continued harms of chattel slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. And our people are just vulnerable across the board on certain issues. And that's why we have to keep people aware, especially online of myths and disinformation, not to believe everything that you see, not to believe everything that you hear, not to share everything that comes across your timeline because we are being targeted. Hmm. And people well, take it. Uh, say that again. I'm sorry. And there's people that take advantage of that. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I in, in the in the research that I'm doing and 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 I'm still doing <laughs> for my video on the Khazar theory about the um, the history of the Ashkenazi Jews. Um, a lot of what I'm running into, just kind of trying to trace back, like how did this theory get started? It did not start with black people. Um, even though there are a lot of the just the Hebrew uh, Israelites, the black you know black Israelites who have latched onto the theory, it did not start with us. It started way back in the beginning of the the 19th century, but a lot of it's been promoted very recently by Jewish people, by Jewish scholars, by Jewish geneticists, by Jewish linguists who are attempting to prove this for one reason or another themselves. And so it's not just our community where this kind of thing happens with any community, particularly one that has like a fraught history, like the history of black Americans, the history of Jewish people, um, where you have these, uh, what I call, what, what do they call? What's the word? Anyway, these, these events that are, that are defining events where uh, we have to start questioning, how did this happen? How did we get here? What, you know, what, what were the mindsets of those people and who can we believe? And, then that makes us all susceptible and open to potentially um, being victims of misinformation or being targeted 
by misinformation and not just from without. A lot of it's coming. Uh, the call is coming from the inside of the house. <laughs> uh, the term I was looking for was an in inflection events. I think that's the terminology inflection events like like the Holocaust and like slavery. And, you know, there's a shakeup. There's something that separates you from your foundation, from your lineage, from your, you know, your mooring and your background. Um, but I want to allow you to give us uh, a few resources that you would recommend because, you know, that's that's oftentimes the issue is that, you know, people are following the shade room or they are listening to their uncle or they are hanging out at the barbershop. And it is the same same issue when it comes to conspiracy theories. It's like there is so much information out there in this in this uh, information age that especially for for black folks who may have a mistrust for traditional news outlets. They they may for good reason have a mistrust of a lot of authority figures who are saying this is what the truth is and this is what fiction is. And so it can be harder for us to parse out truth from fiction if we have mistrust of, of traditional outlets. So are there any resources? And if you don't have those available with you right now, Jessica, I'm going to um, definitely put them up in the link of the podcast and so that people can uh, find those resources. So don't feel any pressure necessarily to come up with them right now, but are there any books or news outlets, websites, um, social media sites other than your own? And I definitely want you to share your own, but that you would recommend where people can find good information. Sure. And one of the things I really hate now is all the paywalls. I know newspapers mm, yeah. have to make a living, but it also yes. makes it hard to share it it hard. information. Yes. People sharing disinformation don't have paywalls. They sure don't. They don't have they a don't. They want that to share freely. That's one of the, I want to do a video on, because media literacy and critical thought, those are huge passions of mine. And I've done some content on that. And I want to do a dedicated video that's just like, hey, these are, these are, these are the legit news sources that I count on. And this is why this is what a legitimate news source looks like. But a lot of the ones that I want to recommend are behind paywalls. And it's like, how do you overcome that? Um, I think that they should be shared and people should be informed that they exist because I feel like everyone should be paying. We're just like we can we can pay for streaming services. Everyone should find one legitimate news outlet that they are willing to pay, you know, whatever, 10 bucks a month for or something. You sh we should be able to connect with one uh, paid news source, but go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead and no give problem. your recommendations, but don't, don't feel like you cannot recommend news sources that are behind paywalls because people should have that information too. Sure. Yes. Um, so one of the, the sites that I really like to share and, and I, and often when I'm making my TikToks and sharing things on our website, these aren't often behind paywalls for that very reason. So there's a blog, uh, that is hosted by the African-American Intellectual History Society, and it's called Black Perspectives. So if you go to um, aaihs.org, there's a whole blog full of Black history written by Black scholars about different Black historical facts and events. And a lot of times they help to clear up cultural misinformation. Mm. So like one of them that I use is the curious history of Anthony Johnson from captive African to right wing talking point. They were trying to say he was really the first person to own a slave, which oh yeah, not accurate. So, but black perspectives, a really good source, not behind a payroll and written by black people. 
Mm-hmm. Another one, this is a news organization, the 19th News. Go to the 19th News, they will have a lot of political, accurate political information about what's going on. Then we have our historical Black newspapers where you can access a lot. Um, they, I think a lot of them fall under the Afro. Um, it's called the Afro-American newspapers, but you can go to, to theafro.org or .com. Um, I also love PBS. PBS, mm-hmm. I share PBS all the time. And they share a lot of Black history and mm-hmm. information and news that is not behind a paywall. Um, then for other places, you can go to NPR. Mm-hmm. Um, and CNN, I don't think has a paywall. I often share CNN. They're not always, you know, nobody is infallible, but you can get some, at least try to get some accurate information there. Now, I also recommend Roland Martin Network. Mm -hmm. Roland Martin takes the time to bring on with the, the top news stories affecting black people, his his network will take the time to try to get folks that understand what's going on or, or, or are involved in the current news story mm-hmm. to come on and explain it for the people. Right. So the Roland Martin network can be accessed on YouTube, um, Facebook, pretty much all the social media sites. Mm-hmm. When it comes to academic journals to get dig and find more information, there's a, site called JSTOR. JSTOR, yeah, absolutely. That's behind a paywall. However, during COVID, um, and I don't think it's changed because I use it, they allow you to read up to 100 articles for free a mm. month. Oh, wow. And you can save them and put them into categories with folders. Hmm. And I go there a lot to go read up on Black history. If somebody asks me a question I don't know, I go look it up and mm-hmm. I go to JSTOR and other, or a book or other places, but these are JSTOR has a lot of academic papers and journals and things like that. Yes. And I mean, again, it's not infallible and academics often are fighting and have Mm -hmm. different perspectives, but at least you get these often from a a source that is a lot more valid sometimes than like a random person on Twitter. Right. Right. Um, at least you have the opportunity to read from multiple sources to then try to get a grounding on a particular topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are off the top of my head what I would recommend for people. Um, those are my go-to places whenever I do videos. I tell people, I, I try to include it either in the video or in the comments where you can read more about this at. And oftentimes they don't have a paywall. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. I mean, you came up, up with all of that off the cuff. Please um, collect those resources. If you would send those to me, I'm going to include those as links in the podcast description and on YouTube where this video is going to go also. Um, and I would also add uh, Joy Reed is a really good resource yes. on, yeah, on TikTok. She's on Instagram. I'm sure she's on Facebook as well. But she's someone who will post little bite-sized clips and things like that. And someone who's a, just a very much a straight shooter and um, doesn't miss words if yes. you're wanting, you know, to hear about what legitimately is happening in the news. But from a black voice, um, she is always someone that is is trustworthy. Yes. And is reliable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's wonderful. Well, you know, Jessica, Jessica, go ahead. I was going to say people can go to our website. Some of the myths. Yeah, that please share, please share your, your information. I'm so sorry. No problem. Um, you can go to NBCIT.org. 
and there's different pages that you can go through, go through our resources, and they often include links to more information about some of the mythology that we address or the mis and dis disinformation that we address. So NBCIT.org and then NBCI Trust on all of our social media accounts. Okay, wonderful. National Black Cultural Information Trust is Jessica Ann Mitchell. I will yours. Yes. <laughs> I, I will yours. I want to say it the other way around. I will your. Okay. It's her organization, the National Black Cultural Information Trust. Jessica, you this has been invaluable. I mean, what a great talk. I feel like I've actually learned some things. And it, it's just always helpful to kind of just help put the just help put the pieces in order in your mind. Even if you even if you understand that misinformation is a big problem. It doesn't mean that you will not be susceptible to misinformation because we all have something called, and I've done videos on confirmation bias. We all have something called confirmation bias, where if there's something that we want to believe bad enough, we are going to seek out new sources that affirm our already existing beliefs and push us further and further into, into that, that lane Yes. Then if we, you know, and, and that's the danger of living in the information age, whatever information that you want to believe or want to plug into, you can find somebody or some news source that will affirm that for you, regardless of how off the wall your beliefs may be. You're probably never going to run into a wall where, where you can't find any information on that belief system somewhere. Somebody is going to say, yep. That's exactly how it went down, sister. Come on, come on over here. You know, sit down at the table. And it's it's a great age that we live in, but it, it can be a very dangerous age that we live in. And we just have to, we have to be more discerning. You know, we have to understand, we have to have our feelers up and understand that we are being targeted, particularly the black community. We are being targeted because, partly because we have been such a reliable, a reliable voting block. And people know that our vote is significant and it's important and you know there's a particular group of people that have been able to pretty much depend whether they you know deserve it or not they've been able to depend on having the black vote so we are we are very much a target for misinformation and for dis disinformation and so i think the work that you're doing is so important it is vitally vitally important you know to and i, I appreciate also the way that you uh, at least you, you at, at, at on a fundamental level, you acknowledge the the hurt. You acknowledge the history. You acknowledge the the need for um, the teaching of positive Black history or real Black history. Um, so you don't approach it from from a, a blaming perspective. But it's like, hey, these people are filling a need. There's if there is uh, real information that they're giving it out, giving out, and they may be giving out giving it out for uh, nefarious purposes. And so we have to realize how we can be manipulated, even in the process of trying to find out about our own history. Um, the, there are shark infested waters out there and there are people who want to take advantage of, of, you know, of, of black folks um, disconnection from our own history. And, and they want to take advantage of our compassion oftentimes. I appreciate the compassion with which you approach this topic. So just thank you for your unique perspective and how just how you bring uh, this correction to the black community. Well, thank you. And thank you for your platform and for covering this. Um, 
it's a much needed discussion that I'm afraid is going to have to happen a lot before 2024 and afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's vitally important that these conversations be happening right now and I'm going to continue to have them. Um, and just that's, that's the best we can do is just shout from the mountaintop and hopefully, um, you know, I, I say that I do what I do, not because I am necessarily trying to convert extremists. I realize that people who are burrowed into their extreme point of view will probably all they, they, they are there because they want to be there. And there's nothing that you can necessarily do to grab someone who is on an extreme end of something and bring them to the middle and reason or ration with them. They are where they are because it's where they want to be. But I exist and I do what I do for the people who are in the middle. For the people who are too busy to dig and research and find out all this extra deep information, they don't, they have children, they have jobs, they do not have time to deeply research everything that they run across. And they also may be a bit fatigued from, from trying to parse out all the truth from the fiction. So it's so important that people like you and I continue to do the work that we do um, because we, we have a passion for it and hopefully we can help to disseminate a lot of this information down to bite-sized pieces where folks who do care about the truth will always have resources. They will always have places where they can go to learn what is real because people are looking for what is real. And oftentimes it isn't a matter of having a desire to know what's real. They just need to have access to that information and for it to be palatable and for it to be digestible for them. So thank you for the work that you do in, in helping to... Um, to, to inform us correctly, accurately, and, and compassionately. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jessica. Well, this has been I'm All Over the Place with Jessica. I will your, we will see you next time. Thank you so much, Jessica, for your time. There will be resources in the YouTube uh, video and in the podcast uh, for all of the uh, news sources and information that uh, Jessica has recommended. So we'll see you all next time. Thank you so much for joining us on I'm All Over the Place. We'll see you next time.